Are you registered to vote? Headcount is a nonpartisan organization that works with the music and entertainment industry to get fans to vote. To update or check your voter registration status, go to headcount.org where you'll find all the information you need to be ready for election day. Are you registered to vote at your current address? More than 60% of eligible voters have never been asked to register. Headcount.org is working to change that. At headcount.org, you can also check your registration status. Millions of people get purged from the voter rolls every year. Everyone should check their registration status each year. The deadline to register to vote in some states is as early as October 4th, so you want to check before then. You can also request an absentee ballot, get info on early voting, find your polling place, and see what's on your ballot. Headcount is a nonpartisan nonprofit that tours with musicians to help concert attendees register to vote. But you don't have to leave your house to register or to get voting info. Just visit headcount.org. Let's not let anyone stop the vote. Register to vote at headcount.org so no one can block the vote. That's headcount.org. Please be advised, all music tracks used in this production are sole property of Kelson Communications and are original compositions. Also, please be advised that the sound bites you'll hear from Dr. Richard Stone I was granted permission to use from administrative personnel at the VA in Washington. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. Coming up will be a Kelson on the Air social work podcast special series entitled Social Workers, Confronting COVID-19 with Compassion, Courage, and Character. Over the next several weeks, you will hear from social workers from all over the country share their stories and their experiences battling and dealing with this devastating pandemic. It is my greatest wish that these stories will garner a new level of appreciation for the vitally important role that social workers play in confronting the challenges, heartbreak, and tragedies this coronavirus is wreaking on all of us. Social workers are there for everyone right now as they are always. To open up this series, please hear this profound message from Dr. Richard Stone, executive in charge of the Veterans Health Administration in Washington, D.C. Following that will be Dr. Aisha Mitchell-Washington, LCSW. She is currently a clinical director at Behavioral Health Connections Atlanta, a universal health services incorporated entity. Please listen, learn, and be inspired. Thank you for tuning in. Today, I want to talk to you about our social work community. You know, social workers are always there. They're always part of our team, and they're always interacting with our patients for various specific needs. But now with social isolation, uh, people uh, people have need social workers for the first time. And our social workers, for the most part, have worked face-to-face with our patients and their families. Now they can't do that. It's very difficult work, and it's unprecedented the level of support we've gotten from our social works community. I want you to think about how much financial instability has uh, has been induced during all of this shutdown. Uh, people are worried about money. People are worried about their jobs. People are worried about each other. And it's our social workers who are the glue that holds this together. And in any really good healthcare system, the social workers are out in front trying to make sure families are well taken care of and all of the unique needs that are not met by our medical professionals are really handled by the social work community. 
So today I'd like you to take a minute and just thank your social workers that are part of your team and recognize how much extraordinary work they've been able to accomplish throughout this pandemic. Thank you. To everyone tuning in, welcome. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. You're listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, the program that promotes, celebrates, uplifts, and highlights the social work profession. This podcast aims to educate the general public to the vital contributions professional social workers make in every aspect of society every day. Our special guest for today's show is Dr. Aisha Mitchell Washington, LCSW. She is currently clinical director at the Behavioral Health Connections Atlanta Universal Health Services Incorporated entity. She graduated from the University of Southern California with a doctorate of social work. She published her dissertation about teen athletes and opioid addiction on ProQuest. Aisha also has a Master's of Science in Human Resources Management from Troy University. She obtained this degree to support organizations and top-notch employees. Dr. Washington strongly believes that the power of any organization is in the strategic planning, recruitment, motivation, and guidance of employees. She is described as a pragmatic, innovative social strategist. Dr. Washington is experienced in providing transformational leadership. She is well-versed in using data analytics and trends to support business initiatives and increase patient intake and census, as well as promoting patient care and safety. Prior to that, Dr. Washington served as social services chief at the Georgia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. Ladies and gentlemen, it is with great honor and privilege that I introduce my guest for this segment, Dr. Aisha Mitchell Washington. Welcome to the show, Dr. Washington. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on the show. I am uh, very honored to be here. This is actually my first podcast I've ever been uh, on before. I've done radio, I've done television, and I've actually done some newspapers. So I'm just so honored to be here. And it's especially important for us to be here during COVID because Social workers have not had the chance to actually reach out to the community as much as the physicians and the nurses who are greatly appreciated. But I really think that we have done a lot in the community to help during this pandemic. And so I'm very honored to be a part of that. And I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because that is the whole um, breadth and scope of this uh, special series that I'm doing is to give more of a voice to all of us as social workers in all the different roles that we play and have been playing in battling this pandemic. And also, not only um, in addition to what you said, social workers have not been given the proper recognition. People just haven't really mentioned social workers, and they don't even really think of social workers in a lot of aspects as, uh, quote-unquote, essential staff and essential personnel But most of the states around the country have dubbed social workers as essential staff and essential personnel. And in a lot of instances, they play a lot of roles specifically related to supporting not only the doctors and the nurses and the EMTs and the other first responders, but a a huge role in supporting those that are afflicted by COVID and also those whose loved ones have been afflicted by COVID. And so that's really what I'm looking to really highlight and bring out in today's interview. So I'm so glad that you could come today to lend your voice to this. Okay. So to get our listeners a little bit of 
background. Um, can you just talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that you've done in relations to helping others to deal with the pandemic so that they can get a, get a better feel for how you've actually interacted with your listeners? Well, thank you. Um, I want to say that I'm currently in Georgia, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. And when the pandemic um, first hit its height, I thought that, well, I need to go back in the field and do more. I, I felt helpless. I felt like there was so much more, just part of like millions uh, of other social workers that I could do. But as an administrator, I realized uh, there was something I, I, I could do. Um, I, I have a degree in human resource management, and I got that degree because I wanted to be able to better train my staff and employees to remain in the field and feel competent and secure in their jobs so that they good employees do not burn out and they're able to deal with any work in any crisis. And that has paid off tremendously in what I do. So as Georgia moved from an unemployment rate of 3.7% in December to 97 now, I was able to retain and continue to recruit staff during this time. I did not have to go into any furloughs, fortunately, or any part-time layoffs, and in that way provide uh, assistance to behavioral health patients that were in the acute care setting and other aspects into the psychiatric hospitals. And that was very important because here in Georgia, we have about 2.3 million people that continue to need mental health services. And that number continued to grow during COVID. So I continued to train and my staff to meet that need and that necessity that came from COVID-19. So I see that means that you you had to have a specific approach when it came to recruiting and hiring during COVID-19, which I'm sure it was a little different uh, once the pandemic hit. So in addition to the things that you shared, uh, whether well, there's a, a different or a special type of employee that you may have been looking for or a different way that you approached the recruitment and hiring. Absolutely. Whereas before, before it was traditionally people walking in or filling out an application and you did the face-to-face interview and you did the training, you had to cut down your training. You had space, um, space to six feet apart Everyone wore masks. There were check-in stations for symptoms. We did more Zoom training as well, conducted more interviews over the phone or via Zoom. Georgia did a uh, emergency uh, licensure endorsement so that you could get it notarized versus uh, having to go through the regular licensure process for those people that were needing more CEUs to continue their license for 2018 and 2020. They were able to do it online. So through our training process versus having, we would train online and provide training where they get paid training. And if they had anything that needed to contribute toward their license, we did reimbursement. So that would help. So the training looked really different where it was more technology-based versus face-to-face. We did a lot of phone check-in and to a lot uh, prepare people to train with mask gloves. Because it was very limited with the N95 mask, private surgical mask, and taught them how to use the cloth mask along with the surgical mask as well. 
Okay, and, and I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, and can, for our listeners, when they hear cloth math and surgical mask, you know, the average everyday listeners probably just thinking, well, isn't a mask a mask? So can you just kind of like uh, elaborate a little bit for our listeners um, the difference between the cloth and the surgical mask as it relates to the way that you had to prepare your employees uh, during the pandemic? Yes. The barrier of protection with the cloth mask is a lower percentage, but it does provide some barrier. But with the surgical mask, it is a higher percentage a higher percentage because it does provide a protection from COVID-19 and the cloth mask is when they first came out and you heard from CDC, it provides some protection. The it's about 90% just as with the N95 mask with the surgical mask. And it's where the yellow is outside and the white is close to your face. Mm -hmm. And those are the masks that you see most people are currently wearing where you have to fit the, uh, wireframe close to your nose and it in the behind your ears. Mm -hmm. The cloth masks are just that. They're cloth and they just go over your face. Mm -hmm. And so um, that being said, uh, the social workers that you, you were working with as far as, you know, training and recruiting, was there any different way that, you know, they were being instructed um, I'm sure there was, but if you could just explain to our listeners different ways that they were being instructed as to how they would go about doing their de jobs every day, working abreast of the emergency orders, the laws and procedures that may have been implemented um, and rapidly involving evolving situations like now all of a sudden social workers who may not be so technically savvy may have to now get up to speed and do teleassessment. Can you talk about that yeah. a little bit? So for the social workers that had not done any telemental health training, Georgia implemented that because years ago, Georgia required that you do mental, telemental health training, and it was six CEUs. So now you could do the six CEUs. You'd have to do, you had to do one hour of the telemental health training, and then within six weeks, you follow up and get the, the next training. But it allowed you to go ahead and start. And for social workers that had not done any telemental health training, that was the requirement for others. They were able to get what we did was we implemented some uh, what we call reinforcement training for those so that they actually had if they had not if they had had this training a long time ago, they could just go back and get refreshers. So those we also implemented Zoom training where we bought additional Zoom licensure and we taught them how to use Zoom. And from that, we also implemented what we, we did with Adobe, Adobe Acrobat. We put all of our assessments and our other uh, forms into Adobe Acrobat so they could type their information. We bought additional programs where they could do e-faxing into, into our network, as well as we got all of them login information so they could do information. And we bought them laptops so that they can go completely electronic. For those cases that required patients that were in ERs that would eventually require them to go into the ER where they could not do the Zoom, we asked that the acute care hospitals work very closely with us, providing them um, protective equipment. And that at time with regards to the, would bring in the surgical mask. Because most of the time, if you wore the cloth mask, you would still be required to, to do the six feet distancing where as with the surgical mask, you would still do the physical distancing, but unlike the cloth mask, it would not keep the the droplet protection as well. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, I'm glad you uh, pointed that out. Thank you for highlighting that. Uh, one thing that you just mentioned that I thought was very interesting was that the uh, state of Georgia um, actually uh, approved that social workers could actually earn um, CEs towards their licensure um, just for getting trained and up to speed in, uh, in telehealth. Is that correct what I heard you say? Yeah, it is required in the state of Georgia that if you are practicing telemental health, that you must do six CEs mm-hmm. to do telemental health. And so they so they kind of expedited that that requirement so that uh, social workers that needed to get that done was it were able to get that done in a quicker fashion. Correct. Right. You could start if you did at least one hour and then within six weeks, you could do the other five. Oh, very and well. if you were a supervisor, you had to get three in order to supervise the oh. three additional. Oh, okay. That's very interesting. Um, um, that's a, you know, very interesting way that the state of uh, Georgia stepped up to, to meet the challenge, which, and I think in a lot of ways it, it showed the, uh, the importance of social workers and making sure um, that they were up to speed with all the new changes that were coming about. Uh, and so uh, obviously with the, uh, with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a lot of uh, anxiety and other concerns um, as the public health crisis unfolded. How had your staff and yourself uh, addressed this uh, specifically from a social work uh, standpoint? Well, I can tell you, we encouraged a lot of staff um, because this was very new. It was unpredictable. The response you would get, it was overwhelming for the staff as well as the community. Um, we encouraged people to reach out to EAP. We um, encourage people to use our Georgia Emotional Support Line. Uh, Supervisors did uh, daily check-ins with staff. We would notate any change in mood, even with our staff. Uh, We created resources and posted them throughout the office. Directors took uh, on-call more often. We even posted the SAMHSA Disaster Distress Helpline throughout the office. We did daily cleaning where everybody would definitely clean the office so that everybody felt comfortable. We limited our visitors. We limited uh, the amount of people that would come into the office, those type of things, so that people felt comfortable coming into the the call center because we had a call center and felt comfortable with going home. I see. Now, you just mentioned something very interesting to me um, as a social worker, and that is of the EAP. The initial stands for Employee Assistance Program. And I think it's very interesting, and I'm sure our listeners would like to know, especially our social work listeners, about how the EAP component addressed the COVID-19 pandemic with that requirement put in place. Well, our EAP counseling program, we provide the employees a number to call. It's completely voluntary the voluntary work-based program, and it's free and it's confidential. They provide the short-term counseling and, and referrals as necessary, and it's done through our HR department, so they don't feel like it's going to interfere at all with their work. And we saw great results with employees that felt overwhelmed and felt like, you know, it was their duty to come to work, and they didn't want to let their teammates down. They didn't want to let their patients down. But they also felt guilty at times, you know, if they had to go into communities with going home and possibly being exposed and not knowing. Because at the time when COVID first came out, the testing was not readily available. And then there were delays. And then there were people and it was a uh, 
a, a way that they did the testing, not only just to where you were exposed, but were you symptomatic? And those were the things they were facing. So EAP brought a wealth of um, knowledge along with counseling that employees needed at that time to help reduce their anxiety. Okay, very good. I'm glad you pointed that out. In the past, I've done shows on EAP, and I actually had EAP social workers on the program, and a lot of um, individuals were very enlightened about, you know, the role that the EAP plays in helping employees through really tough situations. So I think it's really great that you were able to highlight how, in this particular sense, with the pandemic unfolding, that EAP Uh, stepped up in that way. What other types of resources for other social workers did you know about and were you directly involved in? Well, um, another way was working along with my peers that were actually in the hospital was in creating a unique way to deal with our infection control and and disaster plans in managing the flow of patients going into the psychiatric hospital from the acute care hospital. And that was implementing a screening so that when we received emergency crisis calls for psychiatric patients, that we asked the question if they were screening and what the screening meant, because this was different. It wasn't an if they were screened and they were screened positive, what that meant, because at the time, people wanted patients to get psychiatric help, which they they deserved. But for the psychiatric hospital, they were at a disadvantage than with an acute care hospital. At the time, people really, we have heard about the psychiatric advanced directive. Also, people were not ready to get that. And people didn't really know what it was or how they were able to deal with that and what that meant. So it, it became very important. That was a big act to for me to focus for my assessors to for them to understand. So if you, we received a patient into one of our hospitals, whether they walked in or, or came in where they may have screened negative and later showed symptoms and tested positive in the hospital, knowing that they had that psychiatric advanced directive and what that meant mm. in, in regards to that patient. Mm-hmm. I think that was very important in teaching people and understanding what that meant and how that affected their health and who made decisions. That was a something as a social worker I think everybody had to pay attention to because these pe- mental health patients were exact were vulnerable to yes. infection and they were not listed as one of the most vulnerable populations. Mm. I think that went unnoticed. Wow. I'm glad that you pointed that out. Um, and I think it's re- very interesting also that you, you talked about how, you know, it was taken into consideration um, and rightfully so about the advanced directive and, and how that would all get laid out just in case um, there was an issue or a situation where an individual was all of a sudden no longer able to make decisions for themselves and who was going to step into that uh, void and make those decisions. Uh, one of the, That's one of the biggest things um, in healthcare that takes place and social workers on many instances in many instances are the ones that have those conversations and discussions with family members and again that's something that a lot of people don't know and so thank you for bringing that to our listeners attention now when it comes to the different uh, credentials um, um lcsw and lmsw um, lcsw licensed clinical social worker lmsw licensed master social worker can you talk a little bit about endorsement versus reciprocity and if anything was different during this onset of the pandemic it, during the onset of the pandemic I think that a lot of 
the lines became extremely blurred at, during the pandemic, but I think for a lot of the ethical social workers, and I think in all general, they still operated the same way, seeking guidance, especially in my department and in my in my organization, they operate the same way. For, But I, what I found for other people coming out of other states, mm-hmm. what they did, especially with me offering telemental health, is I got a lot of people that were really open to doing the telemental health in Georgia, especially in my neighboring states of Louisiana and Alabama. However, as the pandemic continues and, you know, with the spikes and at times the decline, what has been realized throughout that is that at times you may have patients that do not accidentally fit the criteria that tell it for a telemental health assessment. And at that time, it will require you to do a face to face. That is the drawback that you have. I think that is also the disconnect between the two licensures that of that understanding when it comes with the clinical and with the LMSW. Because in Georgia, there's about 3,000 hours uh, before you become an LCSW versus that with the LMSW. And that's different from state to state. And I think that makes a world of difference. And because for a social worker in our profession, reciprocity it is basically endorsement. Mm. And I know that I have seen I've seen petitions that have said, you know, because other states have now waived a lot of a lot of the requirements, they'd rather go to other states and go ahead and take the waiver and provide services. But I caution those states to please look at who you're hiring their credentials and their experience because these patients are still just as vulnerable as anywhere else and they still need to be provided just the highest level of services. Excellent point. Excellent point. And uh, thank you for highlighting that. Um, now, a lot of social workers who were not so technologically savvy all of a sudden found themselves having to get up to speed rather quickly. So uh, a lot of social workers had to adapt quickly to technology um, who maybe before the pandemic, you know, especially those social workers who have been in the field for a while and you know, they were maybe coming close to the time when they were going to step down and, and, you know, retire from, from working and from serving. Um, now all of a sudden they're thrust into this, uh, this uh, global pandemic. And now they're being told, okay, you have to now start seeing patients um, uh, distant from a distance and doing telehealth and uh, mental telehealth. So how, how did that unfold and what were some of the uh, challenges and obstacles that you had to overcome and that your organizations and the uh, state of Georgia had to overcome to get social workers not only comfortable with working with technology at a moment's notice, but also getting them to, to uh, understand that it was more needed than ever now since the pandemic at onset? I can understand. I can't honestly say that for my organization, we had already been providing telemental health, and because Georgia is a is a very populous state, and probably the eighth most populous state in in rural, because people mostly see Atlanta on TV. You don't see that Georgia's a very. You just see Atlanta on TV. You don't see the rural state of Georgia. Telemental health is very um, much needed here. So. When it came to that and, and the organization and the people that were working with for me, they were ready 
and they were uh, most of them were already trained to provide telemental health. We saw the deficit on most of the acute care side when it came with the with nursing to be able to have the time to to set up equipment and get paperwork and the uh, the signing of that paperwork and the consent requirements done especially during covid the at that time it was getting consent signed and getting um um laptop set up that was not what they consider a priority mm. and i and i can remember talking to joint commission and them saying hey we're not going into the hospitals and i and i understand you're not going but certain things have to be done we still rights were not removed just because joint commission was not in the hospital and we want to make sure that we still advocated and we respected the rights of patients and so i think that was the biggest barrier at the time when um, we were setting up and doing more telemental health sessions and kind of explaining to different nursing departments what it meant to make sure we were ensuring the rights of patients and getting certain consent. So we did change some of the forms, but we what we did is when we set it up, we explained to patients more to, so that nursing wasn't so bogged down mm-hmm. because they're right. They nurses had a lot. They had not just this one patient with mental health needs that could that overwhelmed them, but they had COVID patients with so many needs because this could be a COVID patient with mental health needs. And so that was a huge thing that I found was a, um, when dealing with mental health patients during this pandemic. And as as an administrator, you you've acted in that role you know, before and during and now currently during the crisis, what was your experience about managing the complex needs of COVID onset as an administrator and a social worker with no clear guidelines, growing uncertainty, and also having to navigate levels of scope of practice between, you know, the the clinical social workers um, and what their role was and, you know, making sure that they supported, you know, the nurses, but also played their their role from an administrative um, function. How did you actually address and handle that? I I think it was recreating what it meant to be a social worker during a pandemic and how that was supported. It's like, uh, I think when you first said, when we first started, was what does that mean to be essential? How do you get where you need it to be? Georgia instituted was um, a shelter in place. And so we had to provide to them um, travel letters. That was really different. So for if you got in your car to go somewhere, you had to have travel letters, you had to have badges. And how do you take off the burden of your coworker, your physician, your psychiatrist, your nurse, your CNA, any people that they considered essential and not provide them additional um, burdens. Also, as an administrator, with so with COVID now here and you're costing large organizations or even small businesses so much money and so much impact, now we're here asking for additional things. We're asking for laptops that cost almost a thousand dollars a piece, additional um software that hadn't the cost hadn't changed yes for all these things and additional protection uh ppes how do you get these things because you have to do this in order to keep your staff safe and i think that we did a wonderful job in providing all these things because in the end 
people are our prized possession, our employees. And I think advocating for them, because advocating for my employees was just as important as advocating for my patients. And I think in the end, I had to say that I know that a lot of a lot of administrators that I talked to with other organizations, they felt that they had to cut costs somewhere. And I, as a social worker, a, a lot of times they say we have we live in unicorns and rainbows. <laughs> we probably do. <laughs> we probably do. But I at no point during this uh, did my organization ever tell me that you couldn't have it. I think they said at this point, uh, let's give them whatever they need because there was nothing at this point we could say we could make an exception for because COVID COVID affected each and every person so different. Who could, who could say what was the cost if, if one employee got COVID because we didn't do everything we could. And I think that was important as an administrator to say, and as a social worker. Wow. Yes, indeed. I, I agree with that a hundred percent. And, uh, you know, one of the points that, that you mentioned is, is that when it became obvious that social workers were indeed essential workers here in New York as well, you know, there was a mandate that went out that said, if you're driving in your car, you know, you'd have to make sure that you had um, a letter stating that you were deemed essential personnel and also make sure you have your employee ID. And, you know, I've talked to other social workers around the country and they said in some instances, even though a uh, licensed and professionally trained social worker had their ID, they they had to pass more scrutiny than just say a nurse or a doctor. And, you know, you know, we understand, you know, the, the nurses and the doctors, but we were saying to um, many of my colleagues and I were saying that, you know, social workers, you know, got those emergency calls right along with the nurses and the doctors and had to jump in their car and, and hastily uh, make their way to the hospital or the healthcare center. So, you know, those are, those are some of the things that they tried to do in, in states like uh, Atlanta and New York to make it easier for social workers to, to pass some of that scrutiny. Um, and you mentioned um, just a minute ago when you were talking about all the different things that needed to be purchased, the software and the hardware, uh, which brings me to a point about the burdens of funding, getting all this stuff, helping your staff in your uh, facility and your agency to keep their doors open so that you could meet the needs of the community and also not taking unacceptable risk for staff in your organization. So, how did you juggle that balancing act? Because I'm sure as an administrator, there were a lot of things you had to take into considerations and a lot of decisions that had to be made um, rather quickly. Well, some of the things I can tell you, we encourage people to util- utilize different things such as um, their PTO when they needed to. I took more PTO when I didn't need to go into the field. So that I did not have to sacrifice any any employee time off uh, or cut any furloughs, we encouraged um, when we when it came to even the minimum of supplies like paper overuse of paper when we didn't need to. So utilize your email or scan scanning documents versus printing them out when that wasn't necessary. We use more flash drives to mm-hmm. store things mm. versus the old file and storage, which wasn't needed, um, utilizing of projectors, um, TV screens, 
things like that. So cutting costs where it was easily, um, we could easily do those. Even cutting when it came to cleaning, we we cleaned ourselves and um, to maintain things like that. So the burden of funding was never a part of things that we cut where it would cost the patients or the staff. We had to look at when it came to furniture and things, utilizing old furniture for desks, not having to buy new furniture, those type of things became more innovative and staff knew people that made masks. So they had them make masks. And the thing we went back, like I said, to old social work and utilizing our resources and our networks. And that was very important for staff to do because we wanted to maintain the environment where everyone worked. I think it's important as employers that we always maintain a staff that is that we meet their needs, their personal needs, because when they are meeting the basic necessities of their households, they will provide for our patients and our communities with that, with less stress. They're already stressed during this pandemic. It is not fair to us as employers to ask them to do and meet the needs of a population when they cannot meet their basic needs. And I have always felt that concept as an administrator to not do that to them when a when we as an organization um, now face a crisis. Because, yes, we are not in Georgia. We cannot afford to have any mental health services cut, but we also cannot afford to lose our best employees while we are trying to save anything either. Uh, yes, very, very well put. And uh, I like the fact that you pointed out that you encouraged and uh, you did as well, um, taking the PTO, which uh, for our listeners that may, might not be familiar with that, uh, personal time off. Um, very good um, that you encouraged that so that they could be recharged and re-energized um, because uh, social work is a very stressful position to be in. Um, people don't realize the amount of stress that social workers are under. And, and you, you put it so so nicely when you said, uh, you wanted to make sure that your your social work staff was able to be able to provide the basic necessities for their household so that they could feel um, less stressed when they came in because there are so many demands um, put on a social worker in the course of the performance of their duty throughout the day. You know, and I've seen it also, the healthcare staff in, in general and the social workers who are um, allowed to work um, in the hospital settings, they were always worried about, well, how am I going to keep myself safe when when I'm working here rather so that I don't take anything home when I leave here? And that was a, a you know, a, a cause of concern to many social workers that I spoke with. Um, and also there, there was a lot of concern about what is the proper information that's coming out? What is the right information? So can you talk a little bit about um, promoting the disease prevention efforts by disseminating accurate information from trusted resources? Well, we are lucky in Georgia to have the CDC. So a lot of our information, um, and we also have a very, our corporate office in King of Prussia provided us daily information that was disseminated through our staff. And we would post that in our, uh, I was sending out via email and also would post it in our break room because we had assessors that work from home. We would send it out, we'd send it out through our Tiger Connect. Uh, as well. And also 
sending and encouraging them to only read information through the CDC, not to utilize Facebook or social media, which would cause a panic and to and uh, dis- discourage the use of constant social media during this time because uh, social workers absorb everything. I know we say we're just going to focus on this, but we don't. We, we absorb everything <laughs> yeah, we <do> <laughs> and yes, we, we take do. it and we take it with us and we do not ever, ever um, put it to the side. And so a lot of that information we ask that they take become factual and retreat it like that. And we also made readily available if anyone wanted to talk to our, our nursing department, our nursing chiefs, so that they will be able to follow up with them any accurate information. Our HR directors were available as well at any time for them to follow up and get accurate information as well. So we wanted no one to, to wonder what if if we could answer. And there was no question that we would not pursue further information. And even when it came down to people feeling that, okay, I, uh, I just can't do it, we encouraged them to take the time off until they felt better. In fact, we had, um, if people felt like they needed to come and change prior to going home, that was something we would encourage for them to people would wear uniforms to be changed so they could wear uniforms to work and then they would leave and they would change into their regular clothes so they wouldn't even have to go home in the same clothes, although they had limited exposure. Because like I said, we did have a call center. So those were things that were done just to assist them because it is something different. And there was no such thing as you're overreacting. How do you react to something that you don't know about? Absolutely. Absolutely. So well put. And so, you know, I think you really highlighted for a lot our listeners a lot of um, really what social workers have been dealing with and had to deal with when the uh, pandemic first hit. There was a lot of uncertainty, you know, and to a large degree, there's still a lot of uncertainty. However, social workers have been asked to play the same role that they've always played. So to a large degree, you know, we're doing what we've always been trained to do. It's it's not anything new. It's just that the circumstances in which we're doing them in seem to be a little bit more unnerving because there's so much that we don't know. And when it first hit, it was so much that we didn't know. And social workers still had to do the same things that they were always called to do. And I think that when this is all said and done, I'm really hoping that this is something that will open the eyes of listeners so that they can know that uh, social workers um, always play a huge role anytime any type of disaster or an emergency comes about. There's always social workers um, that are right in the mix of it, but a lot of times people just don't know that. So I'm glad you were able to highlight some of those points as you did so exquisitely. And so as we get ready to wrap up, um, I'd like to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with something that you would like them to ponder on and to think about as an administrator working on the front lines, fighting with COVID-19, fighting against COVID-19, I should say, and being a social worker and also being someone who has to keep other social workers motivated and encouraged. Uh, Leave our listeners with something you would like them to walk away with. Oh, great. Okay. So I just want everybody to really understand that social workers are very essential. We've always been essential, not just in the pandemic, prior to the pandemic, and we're going to be essential after the pandemic because there will always be a crisis for us. 
us. And we do not have to ever fit in a box. And that's what that is what makes social work so great is that we are innovative and we can go by any other name, social strategists or inventive social workers or whatever, but always like clean to <laughs> always clean to the fact that we are social workers essentially and we can be administrators and CEOs and COOs and um, presidents even. But the the main gist of where we started is social work and that is important that we always put that out so that people know at the end of the day when they ask what do we do? And then it's maintain our patients in their environment or bring them back to their environment so that they thrive and become the best. And that is what we want to do. And I just want us to always strive for that and strive for that so that anyone that meets a social worker, they know that this is not when people say I do social work, they're all, they are a social worker and not somebody pretending. Oh, that's so well put. And we're going to leave it right there. I couldn't have said it any better myself. And so I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Aisha Mitchell Washington, uh, for coming on our show and lightening our listeners. Um, and I really appreciate all the fine points that you were able to bring out uh, on this interview. So I thank you so much for joining us here on a special segment of the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. And to all our listeners, again, we've been talking to Dr. Aisha Mitchell Washington. Thank you so much, Dr. Washington for being a very exquisite and a wonderful guest on the show. Thank you. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate and host of the show. You've been listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. This and all other programs are available on the Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Anchor podcast platforms. Go to any search engine and type in Kelson on the Air in the search window to hear this show in its entirety. Thank you for tuning in. This has been a Kelson Communications production.